uh, with everybody coming in for the late uh, uh, client thing and then the coffee break, I imagine people will be coming in for a long time. So uh, I want to leave room on the ends and then back for people coming in because I expect that for quite a while. We have to start, though, in order to get this on, on the tape and so forth. So uh, we're going to jump in here and uh, get it going, even though most of the people aren't here yet. There's a few uh, dispensational journals back there, a Journal of Dispensational Theology, and I have a few more that I bring to the roundtable discussion tomorrow. Uh, but those are just uh, samples that uh, you can do. I'm the book review editor for that journal, and there's articles that uh, you can get. Some of you get this. If you don't, you, you might want to subscribe to it. That's the point, that if you like this, you can subscribe to it and get that. Uh, right now, they're only putting it out two times a year. They were doing it four times, but they're doing it two now. Okay, let's have a word of prayer. We'll jump in here. Father, we thank you so much for your truth and your word. And Lord, as we talk about hermeneutics today and looking into uh, how we are to guard your truth through our interpretation of it, we pray, Father, for insight and clarity in a rather complicated topic. So I pray that you would help us, Lord, with this today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we uh, begin to talk about redemptive historical hermeneutics, our Christocentric Hermeneutics. That's a, probably an easier way to remember it, the Christocentric, uh, but it's often called uh, redemptive historical hermeneutics. As I talk about that today, um, I want to say, first of all, following up with what Andy said just a moment ago, uh, Andy talked about something that is heretical. Uh, the NAR or NAR movement is a, is a heretical movement. They're outside the bounds of historic uh, orthodoxy. Uh, this group of people that we're going to talk about today is not. Uh, these are brothers and sisters in Christ who, uh, for the most part, are where we are on most major doctrines of Scripture. Not everything, but most major doctrines. It's primarily a Reformed uh, covenantal view of, uh, of how to interpret and handle Scripture. So we disagree on a number of major issues, but this is not heretical. So kind of like what uh, Andy just said, I uh, take whatever I have to say here with the real realization that we're not saying these people are evil people, uh, we're, not, uh, we're not angry at these people, we're concerned about what they're teaching. And we believe that there is, is, is a distortion of biblical truth as a result of that. So uh, that's what we're looking at today. Some of you are familiar with this topic. By the way, the, uh, uh, the paper, I have at least two papers on our Think on These Things website that will go through most of this material. So if you've not received that or looked at that yet, you can go back and get that. I'll put that website up at the very end. So, uh, the, so that material is available in written form, but we're going to go through a number of things today to get you uh, into the ballpark of understanding what uh, redemptive hermeneutics, redemptive historic hermeneutics is, why it is a concern, and how it is challenging us today. So let's take a look. Let's jump in here. We'll start off with the fact that, that uh, it appears to be an overreaction. It, it has its roots going back in more modern times to the Netherlands in the 1940s, in which uh, some theologians there were concerned that uh, people were turning the scriptures into simply a, uh, an example type of thing. You read the Bible, find an example of somebody, follow that example, and that Christ himself was not being at the center of, of scripture. And so there seems to be the roots going back into about the 1940s. So to me, it appears in many ways to be an overreaction uh, to, to those who view the stories of the individuals within scripture as merely examples to imitate or shun, instead of the uh, redemptive hermeneutic founders saw these narratives, and in fact all of Scripture is speaking directly of Christ. I'm going to give you some information on that so that we can at least you can go away with at least a handle on what this is all about. And so as we think about that, we'll start with this. These theologians rely on types in which they interpret all Old Testament persons and events and activities as shadows pointing to the person and work of Christ. So that might be a, a helpful uh, de definition. Go to your Bibles to Luke chapter 24, verse 27, and this is the central passage used by those in the Christocentric hermeneutic, Luke chapter 24, verse 27. And as we turn there, uh, we're not going to have time to uh, look at a lot of Scripture itself today. I'll point to some, but, but we will look at this one because it is the central passage for those that take this view, uh, it says in verse 27, Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. So Jesus is walking on the Emmaus Road with two disciples, and uh, he says this to them. 
And uh, this is the passage of Scripture that is most often used. And as a result of this passage, and other things we'll look at in a few moments, uh, they believe that, uh, that it was meant that Christ is found in every text of Scripture, either directly, topologically, or metaphorically. So if you're going to struggle, if you, if you want to get a good handle, let's put it that way, on the definition of what this is, you're saying to yourself, what in the world are we talking about? If you go away with nothing more than this particular definition, you'll be way ahead of maybe where you were. So it's the idea, then, that Christ is found in every text of Scripture. Uh, not in some, not in most, in every text of Scripture. And as a result of that, it is found, if he's not found there directly, which most of the time he's not, if you take the whole Scriptures, thousands upon thousands of passages have nothing directly to do with Christ. But you can find him there through types or metaphors, if you cannot find him directly. So that's what we're, we're going to be looking at and examining here today together. Is that the case? So the task then of the biblical, of biblical interpretation and teaching. So your own personal study of scripture or, on the other hand, the, uh, the teaching, the preaching of the word of God. The task that is before us is, uh, to, uh, is the effort of trying to find an allusion to Christ and the gospel. So they're, they're lumped together, as we'll see. Christ and redemption. They're lumped together in every passage of scripture, Old and New Testament. So that is the idea of what they're after here. Before we look at it more closely, let's say, who is promoting this? Where does this come from? Uh, from a theological aspect, it's coming largely from, from Westminster Theological Seminary, both East and West. It's coming from Reformed Presbyterian Theological Seminary in St. Louis. Uh, it's coming from Calvary Seminary. Uh, Calvin Seminary, thank you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> spoken by a guy who's at Calvary Seminary. Thank you, Tom. Uh, Calvin Seminary. And, uh, and unfortunately, uh, some of the professors, I don't know what the percentage is, but some of the professors at Southern Seminary uh, are also promoting this form of Christocentric theology, so hermeneutics. So it's coming from a lot of sources theologically and broadening. Uh, there's a couple of, uh, of the covenantal leaders that you might not know their names. or these, these guys have taught this at the seminaries. People that you're more familiar with that are promoting this and is getting out in the circles because of people like this uh, are people like Tim Keller, uh, John Piper, uh, Dennis Johnson, who is a, uh, he's written some books on this subject that I'll quote in a little bit, and he is a professor at Westminster, and primarily Brian Chapel. At least in uh, in modern times, uh, Brian Chapel. Oh, I want to back up one more moment on that. Uh, along with that, this group, uh, you will want to add uh, together for the gospel uh, conferences uh, and the gospel coalition. So primarily, as we're going through this, I'll say this more than once. But as we're going through this, this is a covenantal approach to Scripture. You cannot, and I'll, I'll flesh this out. You cannot be a consistent dispensationalist and come up with a crystal-centric hermeneutic. So uh, we'll talk about that in a moment, and why you can't do that. But So this is a covenantal hermeneutic. Now, distinguishing here between reform and covenantal, uh, all of us are reformed to some degree. We believe in the solace. Uh, we believe in glorifying God. We, there's a, the sovereignty of God. We believe in different things. But the covenantal folk have another view. Of course, that is on the covenants, the three major covenants that are not found in Scripture, that uh, <laughs> shaped their theology and some other things as well. So we're, we're distinguishing between covenantal and reformed to that degree. So I'm going really to be saying covenantal theologians primarily. But these are the people that are promoting it. And uh, it's interesting this week, even as I have talked to different ones from different places, uh, people from Brazil are telling me this is all over Brazil this, uh, because of the reformed uh, covenantal movement in, in that country. People in Russia are saying the same thing. People that work in Russia, this is all over the Ukraine and Russia. It, it's, it's really going pretty much everywhere very rapidly, so it's important that we understand what it is and why we're concerned about it. I would also say it's relatively new in a popular modern form. In 1992, for example, the Master Seminary faculty published a book called Rediscovering Expository Preaching, 
And uh, when they did that, they didn't even mention the Christocentric hermeneutic uh, in their preaching. So it was pretty much off the radar for them. Although it was around in different pockets, it wasn't much on their radar. And then uh, later on, Robert Thomas uh, wrote a book called Evangelical Hermeneutics in 2002. And he had made absolutely no reference to this form of hermeneutic as well. So we're talking about, you know, not that it wasn't around, but it wasn't on the radar. Uh, very few were buying into it or, or following it. That's 2002. So this has come along uh, more recently than that. Uh, some say that Luther took this approach, and to some degree he did, but not consistently. Uh, Spurgeon is often the poster boy that they go back to and quote from, and I will quote, quote from Spurgeon later, so don't get too excited if you're a Spurgeon fan yet. Um, it kind of goes back to uh, a guy named Gerardas uh, uh, Voss in the early 1900s who systematized the methodology, but again, it didn't get much traction except in a few circles, so it kind of lingered out there, mainly in Westminster Seminary later and places like that, but it didn't go very far. But it was Brian Chapel who seemed to really bring it into the popular format and uh, people, pastors and seminarians and so forth, started to uh, buy into it through his book, Christ-Centered Preaching. Uh, he wrote that book in 1994, so it's been around a while. He republished in 2005 as the wave was catching on. And uh, as he did, did that, uh, if, you have, if you've read his book, it is really a pretty good book on preaching up to the last few chapters in which he moves into the Christological, Christocentric, I mean, approach to preaching, we'll quote him in a moment. But this is kind of where it's come from, is now being picked up. Uh, Brian Chapel was the president at uh, Reform Seminary in, in St. Louis, and now he is the pastor of Grace Presbyterian Church in Peoria, Illinois, uh, and he's had quite an influence in this regard. But uh, there's, a, there's many, many others as we will see as we go through. I want to point out, though, that Chapel's thesis is to some degree all Christ, and I'm quoting him here, to some degree, all Christ-centered preaching advocates argue that a sermon without Jesus Christ, the gospel, and the grace of God being mentioned is sub-Christian. And so in every message you preach, you have to preach Christ, you have to preach the gospel, and you have to preach grace, or it is a sub-Christian message. So that's inflammatory language. So if you preach a message that doesn't include the gospel and Christ himself, uh, then you are not preaching the Bible according to them. This, uh, this hermeneutic is a direct affront to the literal, grammatical, historical hermeneutics that we hold dear. And I will try to show that here. Uh, so it is a covenantal hermeneutic. Uh, it's challenging the literal, grammatic, historical hermeneutic. It's covenantal in its approach because it rejects two of the three so-called synquinons of uh, of dispensationalism, the necessary components of dispensationalism, and distorts the third. Now, as I say that, I, I, I want to say a couple of things. Uh, there is no, there is no dispensational hermeneutic. Heard that term a couple of times mentioned this week. Uh, there is a hermeneutic of the of the grammatical, historical, literal hermeneutic. If you take that hermeneutical approach consistently through the scriptures you will be a dispensationalist. Okay? So our hermeneutic drives our dispensationalism. Our dispensationalism does not drive our hermeneutic. That's an important distinction that we make sure that we are saying that properly. Um, so what, what is that hermeneutic? The, the Reformed people, the covenantal people, uh, take a uh, historic, grammatical, literal view of most of Scripture. And that's why they come up with the same doctrines we do on most places. We, we're in agreement on all the major doctrines with them. But they do use an allegorical approach in other places. So prophecy is, is well known. They, they allegorize prophecy. They allegorize, for example, the Song of Solomon. They allegorize other places in Scripture. And as a result of that, they come up with some other theologies, some other views. So this is, a, this is a, the reason why there are differences between us and, and many of the covenantalists in some of our theological views. But let's look at the synquinons very quickly and see why a consistent dispensationalist cannot follow this route. If you're consistent, if you're thinking it through, and that's why we're giving this seminar to give you those tools so that you can think this through. Well, the first synchronon, and probably the key one, the foundational one, is that there's a separation between Israel and the church. There's a, there's a distinction between Israel and the church. 
and the covenantalists would uh, would not agree with that. They have different some different views. They're not all monolithic. They have some are replacement theology. Some believe the church has always been around, just in different forms. Israel in the Old Testament, the church in the New Testament, and so forth. But uh, they do not see a distinction between Israel and the church as we do, and that is the foundational dispensational uh, distinctive. And the second one, this is by Ryrie, by the way. There's some other people who have different additions to these, but I think these still stand. There's a literal or grammatical historic hermeneutic. So we've already talked about that. We follow that consistently through Scripture. That from the beginning to end, we're reading the Bible according to hermeneutical consistency and tools of which we use for reading all kinds of literature. And then there is the third one, the underlying purpose of God in the world is his own glory. A, doc, a doxological approach rather than a Christocentric approach. Now let me look at that with you again. We, we've already looked at the, the covenantal people often will deny the distinction between the church and Israel. They're not consistent with their hermeneutic. And thirdly, and I, this is something I didn't really get a good handle on until recently, because the Reformed people have the five solas, and one of the five solas is for God be glor- God is to be glorified alone, right? So that seems to be central to their theology. But, uh, but in reality, uh, they put at the heart of their theology Christ and redemption. And, uh, and we as dispensationalists would say Christ and redemption is a means by which God is glorified. That the central piece of our theology is the glorification of God. We're doxocentric or doxological. Uh, this is a, sh- a subtle shift in which the focus is shifted from God and the Trinity uh, to Christ alone. And it's a subtle thing, and none of us are against glorifying Christ, right? Magnifying Christ. So we have to handle this carefully, but there's a subtle shift that makes a big difference. So let's move on to the, the hermeneutics then of this particular uh, discussion. Since uh, at least the time of the Reformation, the literal, grammatical, historical uh, approach has reigned supreme within conservative Protestantism, not always consistently, but it has been the approach that we have used since that time. Therefore, we use the, the proper rules of interpretation. And all of you have taught hermeneutic courses, all of you have taken them. They can go. We just taught, taught a nine-month hermeneutical Sunday school class at our church, going through all sorts of things in great detail. Uh, we started out with 120 people going through that class, got down to 35, I think, but uh, they slowly drifted away. It's a heavy topic sometimes. Very, very necessary, though. It's foundational. But uh, this is reign supreme, and so we follow those rules. But let me give you the primary function of our hermeneutic, and that is that we are trying to discover the author's intended meaning in any given text. The authorial intent is the key. So all of our methods, all of our rules, all the, the way we read Scripture is trying to get back to what, what did the author mean when he wrote it. And so sometimes people say, what do you mean, the Holy Spirit author, the divine author, or the human author? I don't distinguish those two. The, divine, the human authors didn't always know exactly what they were writing. I'll give it that. But the Holy Spirit did. And they wrote down exactly what he intended them to write. And it's our job as students of Scripture to find out what it was that God intended to put into that text. What is the meaning of the text? And that is basic hermeneutics. That is what hermeneutics is really all about. And so that is what we're after now. The literal, grammatical, historical hermeneutic then is a means by which the biblical text is allowed to speak for itself. This is foundational to what we're going to say. Uh, by using the, prop, the, the proper hermeneutic, the, what I believe is the biblical hermeneutic, by using that, uh, we allow the biblical text to say what God wants it to say. We're not reading into it. We're not making up our own meanings. We're reading it as God intended for it to be read and to be understood. And that is, uh, is what we try to do. Um, and I would say this, whatever lens you use, your hermeneutical lens will determine the outcome of your interpretation, what comes out. I, I don't have time in an hour to go through all of this, but if you would go to the different uh, groups out there today and look at what theology they've come up with, you will find that they come up with those theologies because they placed a hermeneutical lens over top of Scripture. 
and scripture is not allowed to speak for itself. You, you see that in the Word of Faith movement, for example, Prosperity Gospel, the allegorical method, the new perspective on Paul changes all of the scriptures and saying we never have understood what Paul meant uh, until recently, we didn't understand it. The Hermit Hebrews Roots movement is huge today in various forms. We, we've never understood the Bible because we never read it as a Hebrew read it. Uh, there is the post-Reformation pietists. There is the Enlightenment uh, movement. There's a, the Romanticism movement, which is experience mainly. And there is postmodern. All these grids, all these lenses, when placed over Scripture, uh, determines the outcome of what we find there. And so I'm suggesting here that the, uh, the, there's only one true hermeneutic. That's a biblical hermeneutic. And it's a reading the Scriptures as we read other literature historically, sound, grammatically correct, literal, and by literal, of course, we, we include metaphors and illustrations and analogies and all that, just like we do anything else that we read. And we believe that's a biblical hermeneutic that should drive our theology. Well, what happens then when we come to the Christocentric hermeneutic, it uses its lens of Christ and redemption to understand Scripture. So they have a, a, a lens. It's not the biblical lens that I've been describing. It's, it's a lens of Christ in the Scripture. And by that, here's what we mean. We're no longer to look for the author's intent and meaning. We must now discern the real meaning, the deeper, often hidden meaning in the passages that do not say a word about Christ. Now go back to the original definition I gave just a moment ago, in which Christ is found in every text of Scripture. Okay, got that? If you believe that, if you believe that Christ is found in some way in every text of Scripture, then that will be the hermeneutical lens that you will place over top the reading of the Word. So everything you read, it has to have a, a picture of Christ. Every, everything you read is pointing to Christ and redemption. And therefore, when you don't find that there literally in the text, you have to find it through some other methodology. But once you have determined that it has to be there in every text, once you've determined that, it changes the way you read the Bible. And now that lens, uh, the hermeneutical lens, that grid drives our, our interpretation of Scripture instead of allowing the Scriptures themselves to tell us what it wants to tell us. That makes sense? Okay. Uh, I want to make sure that makes sense because uh, I'm, I'm going to stop in a second before I explain where they come to this. If you have some questions, we don't have time for a lot of questions. And at the theological roundtable, you could bring some on this as well if we don't get through some of your questions. But let me kind of pull it together. Uh, the uh, redemptive hermeneutics folks are not saying that the main theme of the Bible is Christ. They are saying the only theme in Scripture is Christ and the Gospel. That is the only theme from the beginning to the end of the Bible, through every parable, through every psalm, through every narrative, through every whatever, Every is the only theme in Scripture. Christ is it. Uh, once you determine that that's how the Bible is to be read, once you've accepted that, then that's how the Bible is going to be read. Right? Every proposition, every story, every proverb, every historical event somehow speaks of Christ and redemption. Uh, Dennis Johnson, for example, who is who wrote, he, him we proclaim, him we proclaim, uh, to uh, promote this particular hermeneutic. He's a professor at Westminster Seminary in California. And uh, he says this, he suggests the authors of scriptures intend us to discern uh, a typological parallel between the purification of ancient Israel through the death of Achan and the purification of the new Israel through the death of Ananias and Sapphira. That's just one example. So he's making a direct link between what happened in Joshua and what happened in Acts and saying what happened to Achan and, and, and Joshua was a direct parallel, a direct pointing to, typologically pointing to Ananias and Sapphira. That's, uh, through the use of similar topology, he sees a connection between Moses' tabernacle and Mary's womb. So the tabernacle is a, is a picture of Christ 
who is who is born in the womb of Mary. So those are the type of of analogies and typologies that you come up with on this. Sure. Yeah. Could you give a quick just clarification why you disagree with them? Because uh, because when we start reading typology, we're saying here's a type of Christ here. Uh, again, that's a touchy subject for all of us. Right? We have to be very careful with types. So when we say that this types is a type of this over in the New Testament, uh, we better be real sure that it is. Did God say that was a type? Did God say that the tabernacle was a type of Mary's womb? So you're saying if Scripture doesn't talk about those categories, flags should go up. That's that's exactly what I would say. I'm very careful with types. Uh, Roy Zuck wrote a good uh, chapter in his hermeneutics on this. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I'm very cautious. Unless the New Testament clarifies it as a type, I'm very, very cautious. And it, it has to be a very obvious one for me to say yes. But when you start now broadening that out and going beyond you know, just the, the more obvious ones, you start broadening that out to thousands of types and everything becomes a type of, of Christ and redemption. Where Who controls that? Matter of fact, Dennis Johnson, in this quote I'm giving here, he talks about guardrails. He says, I realize that we can, we can go off the rail. You ever ride a roller coaster? And you hope you have some, some guardrails? Okay. He said, I realize we can go off the rail in a hurry because the early church went off the rail with, with algorithm and so forth. Uh, and so we have to be very careful. But what are those guardrails? Well, to me, the guardrails is the revelation of Scripture. What does Scripture say is the type or or whatever, uh, he, his guardrails is basically uh, his hermeneutical grid. Okay, that's a good question. Uh, these are just uh, some, I get, for example, this is one that's typical of typology throughout the ages. Uh, who decides if Rahab's sacred cord is typological picture of the blood of Christ, or perhaps a sin, or neither? If scripture is not allowed to speak for itself, then the human authors, armed with whatever theological lens they have, choose what the sacred cord of Rahab means. And so many of you grew up in a typological system where everything's typed. Uh, so, uh, you've probably have read, read books where uh, hundreds of, of types are taken out of the tabernacle and so forth. I, I reject that form of hermeneutics. I think, that's a, I think it's a form of allegorism. And I think uh, calling it type is called it a type, but it's not what it is. It's allegorism, in my opinion. Now, I want to say that. I want to give a caveat here. This hermeneutic has become popular as a reaction to the misuse of Scripture in many of our circles, in which the Bible becomes a self-help book. And we open up the Bible to find, find uh, platitudes and principles for this, that, and the other, uh, where, where, it's not, where it was not meant for that. The foundation of Christ is not there in many cases. And, and I think there's been an overreaction of, of that, and that's why this has been developed. Uh, much of Christianity, as you've heard in recent times, is moralistic, therapeutic deism instead of biblical exegesis. Expositor, John? Just going back to the tabernacle, what yeah. distinction would you make between the tabernacle being a type of Christ and where Hebrews talks about the tabernacle being a picture of heaven uh, and of Christ's work? Well, see, what, what I would do with that, just, just quickly... Is I'm going to I'm going to connect the dots where the scripture connects the dots, and I'm not going to say it's a type of anything unless I can connect a direct dot with with absolute certainty that it's there. And so I'm what scripture does talk about the tabernacle, a picture of the true tabernacle. So I'm going to I'm going to follow that dot pretty easily. But when I start saying that the tent poles in the tabernacle mean the twelve apostles, which some have done, uh, I've got a problem. You know what I'm saying? So uh, I think that just loosens that we just fall off the rails real quickly. Good question. Okay, so I think there's been an overreaction. Uh, we still we need to back ourselves. We need to remember what we're doing. Our real problem is sin and rebellion against God. Our real problem is we are alienated from a holy God. Uh, the solution is reconciliation with Him through the, the cross work of our Savior and the. Uh, uh, and, and we serve a real Savior, and, and we are empowered by the Holy Spirit to minister for Him, and all sorts of things that are, are true. We want to go back to the biblical text. What does it say? Let's not just grab a, a, a proof text somewhere and teach a principle. What does Scripture really say? And it's all founded 
upon theological themes such as Christ, redemption, the Holy Spirit, so forth. Uh, I, I think that will become clearer in just a moment, but I just wanted to give them that reason for doing it. Only literal, literal grammatical, historical hermeneutics allow Scripture to speak for itself. It is the biblical hermeneutic. All other hermeneutics are artificially, artificial layering of theological constructs over the entire text. Um, so I'm going to stop there for just a second. That's the basics. Uh, Christ is in every text. When you read the Bible, you have to find Christ in every text. When he's not there, we put him there through typology or metaphors. And therefore, Christ and the gospel is found in every text of Scripture. That is the essence of Christocentric hermeneutics. It gets more complicated, of course, but that's the essence. That's what I hope all of you will take out, uh, at least looking at what they're saying. Any clarification-type questions on that? The main group text I hear for uh, the Christocentric hermeneutic would be Hosea 1, out of either the columnists. They would say that Matthew applied a Christocentric hermeneutic, but that's the norm. Would you say that there is an exceptional hermeneutic for New Testament authors, or that the New Testament authors applied as a grammatical historical Okay, uh, the question concerns uh, how the New Testament authors interpreted the Old Testament. That's probably the biggest subject in the world. Uh, to deal with, uh, and there's all sorts of books written on that. Uh, it's a difficult, tough subject. I'm, so I'm going to give you a quick answer to that. Uh, I, I don't believe, because that's what they're saying. We should we should uh, read the Bible, interpret the Bible the way the apostles did. But I believe the apostles were led by the Holy Spirit. They were inspired by the Holy Spirit. I don't think they ever left the meaning of the original text in the Old Testament. Abner Child wrote a very good book on this. Uh, he, he doesn't believe we would, we'd never leave the real meaning of the text, but that doesn't mean that the New Testament apostles, through the inspiration of the Spirit, made additional either application or a fuller meaning that wasn't understood in the Old Testament, not disconnected from the Old Testament, but not necessarily understood. The issue is, do we have that kind of insight? Uh, can we take Old Testament passages that have no New Testament parallel and determine that it has a different meaning than the Old Testament authors gave? And I don't think we have that. So that's a short answer to a massive question. Okay? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we have Admiral Ch- Ch- Chow uh-huh. uh, give a couple of papers on hermeneutics at our preacher but it's on our website. He has a whole lecture paper on the preacher website dealing with the, uh, what do you call it, the, what's this hermeneutics? Uh, Christian Christian yes, he does. Hermeneutic, yeah. yeah. And he also has one uh, advocating, you know, correct hermeneutics. Yes. Like you say, in addition to his, his uh, book, and you can you can listen to his hermeneutics course mm-hmm. uh, from Master Seminary on there, and he goes through all of this. Yes. So uh, stuff in detail, and he is really good. Yes. Uh, and he sees all of his problems. Yeah. And is defending the uh, grammatical historical Right. Yeah. So, and he's also the, the Master Seminary Journal had articles by him and others. Right. So you can find these. But Abner Child is one of the best on that. He's done some real good research, real good work. He's originally from Missouri. Is he really? Yeah. That's hard to believe. But okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Let me let me jump in here now. Um, from uh, I don't know why I said that, but anyway. Uh, so these people that are promoting the Christocentric hermeneutic are not silly people or dumb people. They're, they're well-meaning people. They're, they're theologically trained. They're intelligent. So how do they come? What, are their, what is their basis for this hermeneutic? What are, they, what are they basing this on? And I want to suggest to you there's two things they're basing it on, two categories. One is biblical. Well, I don't know why it's not working here. Okay, the, first of all, the biblical biblical approach, and by Brian Chapel says this, it's suddenly gone dead on me. Okay, I look the old-fashioned way. I, the, the other is theological. Let's start with the biblical. Brian Chapel says, true biblical preaching must center on the cross of Jesus Christ. So that's taken from his book on, on Christ-centered preaching. True biblical preaching must center on the cross of Christ. So there's no other theme. 
according to chapel that we deal with. Now, where do they come up with that? And they come up with that with a number of this over here. I can some of issues. Uh, not only the the, Matt, the Luke twenty four passage, but here are the other major passages that they usually usually use. Uh, in First Corinthians one, for example, it says First Corinthians one twenty three, we preach Christ crucified. First uh, Corinthians two two, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Second Corinthians four five. We do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord. Colossians 1.28, we proclaim him. Galatians 6.14, may it never be that I would boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And they would say that these particular verses mean that we only have one theme in Scripture. Now, my point early on in Luke chapter 24, if Jesus had said in that passage that every passage in the Old Testament is about me, if he had said that, then the case is closed. We're done. But if you read the text, it doesn't say that. He says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all scripture concerning himself. So everywhere, every, the places in the Old Testament that referenced him, those he exposed to these disciples. He did not say, even in this cursory reading, he did not say everything in the Old Testament is about me. He just didn't say it. But had he said that, we're done. And we would accept a crystal-centric hermeneutic. Uh, these other passages, uh, they take these isolated from the rest of the text. For example, several of these are taken from First, first and Second Corinthians. If you read First Corinthians, you know that Paul dealt with all sorts of subjects. There's 13 major sins, and false, only one false teaching, but 13 major sins in the book of First Corinthians he deals with. None of those are directly connected with Christ at the cross. It's based on that. Christ is the foundation of all we do. But he is dealing with other subjects outside of those subjects. And you know what some of those are, I assume. Uh, some have determined, distinguished between Christocentric and Christotelic. Uh, Christotelic is a fancier term that means that, that if you zoom out far enough, you know, get in your helicopter and zoom over, you zoom out far enough, then everything in Scripture is is pointing to Christ. Uh, you might accept that to a degree, but Christocentric is not saying that everything points to Christ. It's saying everything is about Christ. Every theme, every, every text is about him. That's a different thing. Uh, and does not Christ then, uh, does not the Bible teach many other things such as the nature of God, his glory, his holiness, wisdom, might, his kingdom, his sovereignty, num numbers of subjects outside of simply the gospel and Christ. How about the return of Christ, for example, and the coming of the kingdom, the local church, and church discipline, and, uh, Israel's future, uh, family life, and the Holy Spirit. Many, many other subjects. The better approach then is to recognize that these passages that, that we just referenced, that they're referencing as proof texts, they're, they're in a context. They're saying something within the context of that particular passage of Scripture that they're applying to the Scripture as a whole. And that's not good hermeneutics either. You keep things in its context. What did Paul mean that we preach Christ crucified? Why, why does his context there? Is he saying that's all we preach? There's no other subjects? There are no other sermons except Christ and the Gospel? Or is he saying something in a the context there? And I think if you go back and look, you'll find he's saying something definitely in a context. Abner Chow does sum this up very well. His concern, he says, the problem with their proof texts is that they have inferred ideas that go beyond what was stated and why it was stated. The meaning of the text does not justify the full extent of the implications they have drawn. This is the exact problem the approaches had all along. For this reason, the particular passage, passages cited by the Christocentric hermeneutic do not support their goal of making every text speak of Christ. To the contrary, their use of the scripture only illustrates the problem of their approach. They cannot consistently uh, apply their own approach to Scripture, uh, he says, and, and, and it shows up in the way they try to handle Scripture. That's the biblical uh, approach. So they're trying to prove their, 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 their idea of hermeneutics based on some Scripture. Uh, and I, as we've looked at these just briefly, I don't think they hold up. So they, they actually move more to a theological 
grid that we'll look at here. Redemptive hermeneutics draws is on theological presuppositions, and the two major ones are, are typology and context. Typology. Chapel says, how do you how do expository preachers infuse the redemptive essentials, i.e., Christ-centeredness, into every sermon without superimposing ideas foreign to many texts? Now, this is written by Chapel himself. And he's saying, how do you do that? Because he goes on to write, thousands of passages said nothing about Christ. We would agree with that, right? So how do you get him in every text of Scripture? Uh, so he says, how, so how, do, you, how do you do that? Uh, he says very carefully. Uh, Dennis Johnson, concerning this, says, the dangers of Jesus." so some have teased me this week about the subject, saying, I see Jesus. In every text, Jesus. So that might be an easy way to remember it. But uh, Jesus is, of course, bringing our own ideas to the text rather than drawing the, the truth out of the text. Okay, so Jesus. Now, these are, the, these are the major promoters of this hermeneutic. And they see the danger. Yeah. People have always accused me of Jesus. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're forbidden to talk from now on, Tommy. Okay. <laughs> Okay, the dangers of eisegesis, whether his kind or some other. Reading into the text, a text, a text on our own idea, foreign to the passage in the original context. At some point, the line between topology and, and he's right, he's saying this, I'm quoting him. At some points, the line between topology and parable and allegory may seem exceedingly fine. And the history of exegesis provides ample examples of biblical students who started with a sensitivity to biblical symbolism and ended with detailed multi-layered readings of the biblical text that despite the best intentions violated both the clarity of and the author of the word they sought to expound. So he's warning us that historically the allegorical method of interpretation has led to disaster. Now, what they're saying here is our method is not allegorical, it's typological. It's typology. And folks, as I've read their literature, I can't see the difference, at least in the way they're using it. There are legitimate types. Most of all of us know that. But they're using it in an allegorical sense rather than a, 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 a sense that's legitimate. Johnson speaks, uh, seeks to resolve this tension through the use of this typology, claiming it's not allegorization. Listen to this. Look at the red in particular. The typology of a questionable and exaggerated nature is necessary for a redemptive hermeneutic system to function. It cannot function without typology because Christ is not in every text. Typology is necessary. It is the primary way in which Christ can be forced into every text of Scripture, even those who do not allude to him. And without great care, typology differs very little from allegorizing and is just as concerned. Okay? That would be my thesis on how they're handling these things. Yeah? If, if, if they're cautioning this, what are their rules that they set? What are their boundaries that distinguish between the two? Yeah, I think the only thing we can come up with is, uh, and I don't know I've heard them read exactly because they talk about guardrails, but I think the guard, their guardrails is a theological system. So uh, the analogy of the faith, for example, or, or the Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, those types of things that, that hold the, uh, the, the parameters of Orthodox Christianity as they see it, that will keep us from interpreting Scripture beyond those boundaries. And, uh, but that doesn't justify their use of, of how they're using typology. For example, all of us have heard good sermons. Unfortunately, all of us have probably preached good sermons, from a text of scripture that had nothing to do with what we just said. Right? And somebody leaves the room, you ever, ever do this, you've gone to a conference and somebody comes out and just obliterated the biblical text. But it's a wonderful message in line with our theology. Uh, it just wasn't in the Bible right there. And, and, and you hear people walking out going, that was the best message I have ever heard. And if you're like me, I'm biting my tongue saying, oh man, did you, did you, that's not even in the Bible. You know, 
I, I stopped going to most conferences because I just can't stand myself. I sat in the foyer stewing the whole time for what just happened. But usually, usually what they preached was in line with what I believed. It just wasn't in that passage. The problem is once we cut ourselves loose from true literal hermeneutics, uh, the next generation may not be as generous with truth. You know, uh, in other words, most of us have good foundations, and those foundations hold us in place. But we're raising a generation now that doesn't have that foundation, and uh, therefore it's very dangerous to teach them a false way of interpreting the Bible. Isn't this really a return to pre-Reformation? I think so. Yeah. It, it's very similar to uh, the allegorical system that preceded the Reformation that brought us out of that. The Reformation went back to the true authorial intent of Scripture. We're losing that here. Not in a huge way, but in a very important way. Okay. And these people claim they're reformed. Yes, they would be uh, reformed. That's why you're hearing this mostly in reformed circles. Um, but yeah, they're, they're, uh, and they're trying to pick off some reformed people saying that. I'm going to give you a sermon. Uh, so this is right out of Dennis Johnson's book. Um, so this is how they would preach. And so, for example, uh, we're, in, we're in 2 Samuel 16, and Shammai, uh, here's point one, Shammai, Saul's cursing kingsman, an insolent, an insolent subject who lies about his king as you have done. So this, uh, remember the story, uh, this guy was... Uh, throwing things at David and so forth. He lied about his king. You've done that. You've lied about his king. Right? <clears throat> Second point. <clears throat> Abishai David's killing kinsmen. He wanted to kill Shammai, remember? Uh, the loyal soldier who would defend his king for the wrong reason, in the wrong way, as you've done. Point three. King David the king falsely and truly accused Al. Where's Christ in there? Well, he's not in there. Not yet. He's going to get there. He says, yet in order to preach this text in the context of 2 Samuel and the completed canon, the rest of the canon, we must, we must add, I should have put that in red, we must add a fourth point. And the fourth point is Jesus the King, falsely accused, condemned and punished for the charge that was, was, that was true of David and of you. Okay. Uh, now, now you can go to that at fourth point and say, yeah, I, I agree, Christ was the king, he's falsely accused, he's condemned for us. Uh, we agree with that. But that's not in the text. See, see what I'm saying? He's added a fourth point because it didn't fit his hermeneutical grid. And he has to add that point, and he says we've added it. John? How would you distinguish between <coughs> what their hermeneutic is and preaching that and then using it to illustrate uh, what happened to Christ. Yeah, and that, and that to use, you can sometimes go to the Old Testament and do an illustration. They say, well, this happened to uh, David, this happened to whoever you want to pick out, you know. And you can kind of illustrate it to some degree. But I'm always cautious even there. And I'm going to say when I'm preaching that, I'm going to say this is not the interpretation of the text. Uh, it's not what it's saying. But we do find that example, an example of Joseph being rejected by his kinsmen. Okay? Christ was rejected. Uh, I, we see that kind of thing. And maybe, that, but, but that is not what this particular text teaches. And I think we have to be, as, as teachers and preachers, we have to be very careful we do that. Because our people, we're modeling, I tell my elders, you're modeling how you teach the Bible and how you pray by being in front of the congregation teaching and preaching and praying. And so we're setting an agenda for our people. Okay. <clears throat> typology. Uh, Johnson does the same thing with other texts, claiming typo typology allows him to find Jesus' death in Naboth's. Okay, remember Naboth's death of the fool? We find Jesus' death there. Esther's willingness to die foreshadowing Christ's willingness to die. Well, there's an illustration. Esther was willing to die for her people. Is that what the biblical text says? Does, he, does, does the scripture take us back to Esther as the typological connecting point. It does not. So I want to be very careful about that. I might illustrate it, but I'm going to be careful. It's not, it is not the meaning of the text. hope you're grasping that, because that is central. Okay? Um, 
Yet scripture never makes these claims, and to do so is left to the imagination of the interpreter. Okay, so if, if it's not in the Bible, who's going to decide what these things mean? Well, the interpreter. Uh, somebody asked me at my church the other day, well, well how do they, how, you know, which, which one of the interpretations these people come up with is the one that they're going to go with, especially the, the more general public of the Reformed circles? Well, most likely it's some big shot who's written a commentary and tells them what they want to read. Read the commentaries from an allegorical perspective on Revelation and how they interpret those symbols. And then you go to another church and they interpret the same way. How do they do that? They've read some big guy who interpreted them that way and they, they grasp them. But if you just open the text of Scripture, you wouldn't come up with what they come up with. That's an imagination uh, using a wrong hermeneutical process. Typology becomes virtually indistinguishable then from allegorism in these examples. Allegorization or allegorism ruined the early church, as Thomas just said, plunging it into theological darkness, all in an attempt to find meaning in Scripture that the Lord did not intend. And by the way, that is on an uptick. The uh, ancient, uh, something rather commentary series that's come out, uh, 25 volumes or whatever, the, of the, going back to the early church fathers and how they interpreted scripture. Anybody read any of those? Somebody? When I read those, they're off the wall. So many of the interpretations are allegory and, and uh, just imaginative. They don't agree with one another. It, it's really the uh, post-apostolic uh, fathers not so much up, up to around 300. Yeah, it's the patristics. They didn't allegorize as much. They did immediately, mm-hmm. but it's more the yeah, so we start with origin and moving forward, right. and you start you start this system, but that became the system. So most of you know that, that they came up with a system that there was four meanings to every text, and the literal meaning was, the, who cared? Uh, and eventually you got to a mystical and allegorical meaning that was more deep. And that's, you ever heard of anybody do an allegory of scripture, and somebody says, well, that's deep. Yeah, deep. I don't want to tell you what that means. <laughs> okay. Uh, that's what they were doing for hundreds of years. Hundreds of years, okay? We're going to have to strike a lot of this tape, I think. Okay. <laughs> Chapel admits, how does one get redemptive truth out of a text and into the sermon can stretch both exegetical and preaching skills? I agree. And he is an expert. He is one of the very best at both. Uh, and though the average guy going to the text and making this stuff up, Stretches your skills, let me tell you. Uh, I don't, as a matter of fact, it stretches his skills. Nevertheless, Chapel insists it can be done if we broaden the context for it. So we have typology, and if typology doesn't do the job for us, we go to context. But when he means context here, uh, he says this whether neither, when neither text nor type discloses the Savior's work, Christ in the cross, a preacher must rely on context to develop the redemptive focus of the passage. Every passage has a redemptive focus, a gospel focus, according to Chapel. But he is not speaking, and this is important, I mean, we use words differently sometimes. He is not speaking of the context of Scripture, which is one of the most important hermeneutical principles. He's not even speaking of a theological context. He is speaking of a Christocentric context. A theological system they've set up, a hermeneutic they've set up within that context of their hermeneutical system uh, is what he's talking about. How do they develop their original thesis? In other words, if they're allegorizing the scriptures, you know, uh, where do they come up with their views of Christ to begin with if, if it's not literal? Yeah, and so they come up with their views of Christ and the cross and the things that we agree with them on by taking a literal approach to Scripture. Right. So, but how? But they're trying to find Him everywhere. Is the thing, and and but they're staying. They're not going to deny the cross. They're not going to deny Christ. They have to resort to literal interpretation to get their system. They do. They do. So without the literal interpretation. Yeah, I think it is. Yeah, it's, it's inconsistent. Okay, good point. Having already predetermined that Christ is found in all texts of scriptures, we must be and must be preached from all texts of scripture, no matter what the authorial intent, this theological construct now becomes the template by which all texts are interpreted. So again, their grid determines. Let me let, let me give this summary here 
of what I've said so far. Uh, the summary of it, to help you a little bit. A layering, number one, they layer an artificial theological construct over the words of Scripture. So, the, so, so again, think about a pair of sunglasses. You, you have a lens, and if you use a pair of sunglasses with a green lens, that, that determines the coloration of what you're looking at. If you use red sunglasses, it determines. So they're layering over top of Scripture a lens that, develop, that causes an outcome to come that wouldn't be there without that lens. Secondly, they're forcing a biblical text to say what was never intended by the author. This is not the authorial intent of the text. They're making it say something that the author never intended it to say. Resurrecting a dangerous system of allegorizing disguised as typology. Misinterpreting Luke 24, 27, and then attempting to wrap the rest of the Bible around that misinterpretation. Minimizing essential themes in order to elevate what is considered the only true theme of Scripture. Everything else is minimized and pushed off to the side. And then manipulating texts in order to somehow take them back to Christ and the cross when they're not the intention of the biblical authors, divine or human. So there's a summary. Here's our, here's our favorite quote from Spurgeon. Some of you are Spurgeon addicts, so please don't throw rocks. I like Spurgeon in his place, but he's not an expositor, by the way. But uh, here's what he said. Don't you know, young man, that from every town and every village and every little hamlet in England, wherever it may be, there's a road to London. And so from every text in Scripture, there's a road to Christ. And my dear brother, your business is, when you get to the text, to say, now, what is the road to Christ? I've never yet found a text that did not... I had not got a road to Christ in it. And if I ever do find one that does not have a road to Christ in it, I will make one. There's a problem. I will make one. I don't care if you are Spurgeon. You don't have the right to do that. So they like to quote that, and that's one of their favorite quotes. So the issue is, who gets to interpret the text? Do uh, the authors or do human, uh, both human and divine, or do the readers? Spurgeon or whoever, or you or me, who gets the right to determine that should be God? Is authorial intent to be overruled by the sovereignty of the reader or the reader's community? In this case, those who have embraced redemptive historical hermeneutics. The uh, RH teachers will claim that Christocentric preaching is modeled by the apostles and Jesus. That was brought up a moment ago. Uh, David Helm wrote a book on preaching. And and, he, on, and unfortunately, by the way, this is it's kind of showing you, this is a book put out by Nine Marks. So it's a Nine Mark publication published by Crossway. Uh, and a lot of it's good, by the way, and it's not all bad by any means. But uh, he says in Acts 17, this is the model of preaching. All preaching in the New Testament is Christ-centered, and Christ should be preached from all, all the scriptures, based on Acts 17. But again, they, they use these texts. What was going on in Acts 17? Who was he preaching to? The church or unsaved people? And almost all the sermons in Acts are written are evangelistic. But you come to the epistles, it's talking to the church. It's a whole different flavor. I'm running out of time, so I'm hurrying. Uh, so I basically said that. Just a couple of quotes from folks on our side. May you said it's improper to interpret an Old Testament passage as though it's about Christ, but it's not, in fact not. It is wrong to find types of Christ in the Old Testament that God did not intend. I agree. Brian Murphy from Master said, Preach it in its biblical context and then relate it to the church today. If it points to Christ, make Christ the point of the message. If Christ is not the point of the text, do not force it. There are many ways that the New Testament believer can benefit from a faithful exposition of an Old Testament text. Part of the problem, I think, is an improper view of God running out of time. The, the Christian faith is Trinitarian. Uh, we, are, we are Trinitarians. Mayhew reminds us that Scripture is not exclusively, that Scripture is exclusively theocentric in a triune sense, not limited to Christ alone. The Christ-centered preaching approach is in effect to ignore seeming, or seemingly demote the Father and the Spirit in importance. To artificially inject Christ into every text and passage makes that error. Charles says concentrating on, on Christ alone can cause one to neglect discussing the Father and the Spirit. It can even lead to confusion on the roles between the Godhead. Even more, it can distort the Gospel. After all, the Gospel is Trinitarian in nature. Christocentrism can create a canon that can de-emphasize the Trinity. Rick Phillips, who is, a, who is Reformed, he is from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. So the, under the Gospel Center rubric, 
Teaching theology is deemed irrelevant. Instruction is legalistic. And confirming false teaching is ungracious. In this approach, the biblical evidence shows that Jesus did not have, himself didn't have a gospel-centered ministry. In fact, most of what Jesus did in the Gospel of Mark proves, would be uh, rejected by the Christocentric people. Walt Kaiser, Old Testament scholar, says, Old Testament texts yield Old Testament sermons. Who, but who said that was bad or undesirable? As if someone other than God were the source and the author of the Old Testament, or that these texts have such temporary written over them that they almost all of them are now passe and as useful only as primers or sermon starters. Okay, I'm going to finish with this. Brian Murphy from Masters says there's three real dangers to this approach. Number one, it models bad hermeneutics. So we're modeling for our people a bad way of approaching Scripture. Secondly, it, it rejects the biblical model. And thirdly, it, it fails to equip saints because it fails to teach the whole counsel of God. It's teaching a slice of the counsel of God, not the whole counsel of God. And that will have repercussions in the future. Okay, we're out of time. You've got lunch to go to, so thank you for your attention.